On this third Sunday of Advent, we're taking a look at joy. What does it mean to experience joy in Advent? I can't remember. I looked up a number of definitions this week. I don't remember if this was Oxford or if this was Webster's, but joy can be defined as a feeling of great pleasure or happiness. Now note this, that comes from success or good fortune or a sense of well-being. That joy is a feeling of great pleasure or happiness that comes from success, good fortune, or a sense of well-being. Now that's a problem. That says that if you don't have success or good fortune or a sense of well-being, that you can't be joyful. That's a problematic definition of joy. And it's certainly not the biblical definition of joy. Where an apostle facing imminent death can say, Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. You see, if our rejoicing, if our joy is only situational, it can be taken from us. Yesterday, I joined James North, the church that I had pastored for 28 years, in handing out Christmas hampers to 300 families in our city. So they take hampers to 300 families, most of whom they know. Right? I asked them yesterday how many people are coming to coffees on the weekly drop-in that helps people every week. The gospel is shared at the drop-in, and 50 to 60 people are coming every week for assistance at the church. So they're helping numbers of families every month. So Jewel and Ivy are twins, and my niece Lauren and I dropped off some of the Christmas hampers. We went, and we dropped some off, and we got to some of the homes, and Every house we dropped them off of, two people I didn't know at all. I mean, James North is always like, just so you know, we've given you the tough ones. Like, this guy's just gotten out of prison. I'm like, thank you. Thank you that this hasn't changed, right? And some people I've helped for years that I've known for years. I got to this one family where it seemed like mom was in one apartment with some people and two brothers were in another apartment and the one had just gotten out of prison and I didn't know what to expect because I didn't know them. They were incredibly poor. I mean, you could just see as you walked the hamper in to the apartment, they had so little. And yet they were so thankful. They were just so filled with joy when I showed up. When I showed up and we were walking down the hallway of another apartment, the lady, because we'd buzzed up, came down to the end and she's hollering, Pastor Dwayne, I'm so glad you're here. You've made this Christmas merry. And great joy. But that joy is only situational. I mean, there's a turkey, there's Christmas dinner, there's toys for the kids, there's extra food for the week. But it will all be gone in a few days. None of it will be there. I was at the gym Friday morning. I worked out pretty hard Friday morning, and I felt good about myself. I was walking down the steps of the gym to the lower level, and I felt, you know, out to the steps, and I felt like I just had a good workout. Good 50 minutes of working out. I feel great. And as I'm walking out, a young man who I've now seen three, well, he's not that young anymore, but three times at the gym, hollers out to me. And I see some of the buddies I know I'm talking to. And he's like, Dwayne, Dwayne, you inspire me. And I'm like, thanks, man. How do I inspire you? And his family used to receive Christmas hampers from us. He grew up in the North End. He's now 43. When I met him, he was 13. I was 22, starting to pastor James North. I think he's going to thank me for all the work I did in the North End. But this is what he says. He says, you inspire me. He says, when your body has given up on you, you haven't given up on your body. 
And then he says this for a guy in his 60s. And I'm like, no, stop right there. Stop right there. I said, I am 52. And he's like, he's now six foot four. And like, he looks like a tank. When he was 18 years old, he went to jail for 12 years because he had shot another man, two gang rivalries downtown Hamilton at Christmas time. It was December 23rd. I'll never forget it. I went to the hospital. I knew both the guys that had shot at each other. They both went away, shot at each other, right? But you know, when you're 13 years old, right, and I'm 22 years old, you think I'm old. Everybody knows that. When you're a teenager, Jewel and Ivy said it yesterday. They're 14. They said, Dad, anybody older than 20 looks old to us, right? And so I'm like, man, I'm only 52. And he's like, that's not even possible. Like, he was just shocked. And so then I told him, and I said, hey, when you were 13, I was 22. Then he looked at me, and he said this, then there's still hope for you at the gym. <laughs> and I walked out with no joy. No joy whatsoever at the gym. I was leaving the gym feeling really good about my workout. I left the gym feeling like, Lord, there's still hope. <laughs> we come to Christmas. We celebrate the shepherds. Next week, we'll look at the Magi and what Jesus is doing, like the birth and what God's doing there. But often we miss this time in between in Luke 2. Often we never reflect on the day of purification and his dedication at the temple. I mean, this is only 40 days after his birth. We don't even have Simeon and Anna near our nativity scenes. But I imagine if I go and find the nativity scene at West Highland, the Magi are there, and they were nowhere near there. They didn't show up for a year. I'll talk about that next week. So next Sunday, I might move the Magi, just so you know, down the hall. So, no, I won't do that. Phil's smiling at me like, oh, no, thumbs up. All right, we'll move in the Magi. Luke 2, beginning at verse 21. What is joy? What is joy at Christmas? On the eighth day, so this is eighth day after Jesus is born, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was given the name Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. So this is typical in the Jewish home. Day eight, not only is the child circumcised, is the male circumcised, but he's also named. The name of the child is given to them on the day of circumcision of the boys. But I want you to note this. This is important. This is the first time his blood will be shed. I mean, why was circumcision a sign of the Old Testament? Why was it a sign of the covenant? You see, for God to covenant with his people, there had to be death. There had to be death. The wages, the penalty, the punishment for sin is what? It's, it's death. It's death spiritually. It's death relationally. It's death emotionally. It's death physically. The wages, the penalty, the punishment for sin is death. It's death. And so circumcision is a sign of death. Blood is involved. And so Jesus, on the eighth day of his life, as a foreshadow of his ultimate death, has some of his blood shed as he's circumcised. And his name is given, the name the angel said, Jesus. Well, when the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Mary, sorry, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. 
So they go to the temple. Note what it says in verse 21. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law. You will find a phrase like this five times in chapter 2. Five times in chapter 2 you will find a phrase that talks about how Mary and Joseph are doing what is required by the law. What does that say of them? These are godly young people. These are people who love Jehovah. These are people who love their God. And although, and I talked about this the last, well, last week, in the last couple of weeks, although people would have mocked them and made fun of them, right? Oh, we know what they did before they were married. We can do the math. They were actually this godly young couple whom God entrusted with himself. Whom God entrusted with himself. Likely in their day completely ostracized by their families, believing that they weren't the righteous people that they thought they were. And yet that's who Mary and Joseph are. They are the righteous people. I mean, mom and dad would have been crushed. We thought we knew you. And yet obviously you were having relationships outside of marriage. I mean, that's what Joseph thought of Mary when she said it was God's son. Of course, that's what their parents thought. Of course, that's what aunts and uncles thought. Of course, that's what the people around them thought. Of course, that's what all their friends thought. We thought we knew you. And they did. They did that which was required by the law because this was a young couple that God could entrust to raise his son because they loved the Lord deeply. So they go to Jerusalem, they present him to the Lord. That's what the law requires. This is 40 days after he's born because a woman is unclean. You can read this in the law, for the 40 days. So according to the law, they go there. What's required so that Mary can be purified and because he's the firstborn son so that he can be consecrated and they bring an offering. And do you know what the offering was? It's said here, it's either two doves or pigeons. They bring the poor person's offering. They can't afford a lamb. I mean, Jesus wasn't just born into a humble home. He was born into an impoverished home. I mean, Joseph's working class, but from this indication here, you know, working class that's struggling. That should say something to us about the value of money, shouldn't it? When we put to a high value on money, I mean, had God put a high value on money, what would he have done? He'd have put Jesus in a wealthy home. He didn't. I remember when I was in Kenya, we were only there for a few weeks, and I was teaching at Moffat College of the Bible, and, and um, I was driving with a bunch of the young men hours into a village to preach, and as we were there, we were talking doctrine and theology and practice of the church, and I was asking them about elders in the church, and some of them said, well, you know, we have some people we would love to be elders in our church. They're godly people, but they're too poor. They don't make enough money. I said, well, are, are they providing for their families? Yes, but, you know, they lived in thatched homes instead of in, in built homes, right? They, they still live agrarily off the land. But I said, are they providing for their families? They said they are. But in their culture, they thought, well, you have to make so much money to really be an elder. That's nowhere in the Bible. It's not in Scripture. Goodness. Create all these crazy traditions. God allows his son to be raised in just a working class home that's struggling. He's trying to make ends meet. That can't afford a lamb for a sacrifice. They have to be able to come and use the offering that's meant for those that are more impoverished. 
and they do so. Phil Riken says this, commentator, in his circumcision, Jesus received the lawful sign of the covenant. In his presentation, Jesus was consecrated to God as the law required. Then all through the rest of his life, he lived in perfect obedience to the whole will of God. He did this for our salvation. We are saved by Christ's death on the cross, but we are also saved by his life on earth in which he fulfilled all the righteousness that we owe to God. Verse 25. There was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon. He was a righteous and devout man. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. The Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God. Note a few things about Simeon. One, he was righteous and devout. Here's a godly man. A godly man who loves God deeply. He's righteous. He's following the requirements of the law. He's devout. He's committed to it. He's waiting for the consolation of Israel. The comfort of Israel. Israel is right now under Roman tyranny. Israel, God's nation, God's people is occupied by their enemies. And he's believing God's going to free them. He's believing God's going to come. And God's going to set them free from this tyranny they're experiencing. And he, by the Spirit of God, has been told that he will not die until he sees the consolation, the comfort, the promised one of Israel. Notice the Holy Spirit is with him. It's been revealed. First, the Holy Spirit is on him in verse 2. It's three times here. Then revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he'd seen the Lord's Messiah. And then verse 27, he's moved by the Spirit. He goes into the temple courts. He's devout. He's righteous. He's moved by the Spirit. This is at a time before the ascension of Christ when God's Spirit falls on all believers. Do you know that God's Spirit is in you if you're a believer today? Just like he was in Simeon? God's Spirit is in you. Have you learned to listen to him closely enough that as you walk out the doors of West Highland today, as this service is done, that he could say to you, go to the cafe, not for a drink, but because he has someone he wants you to meet. That he could say to you, go downstairs to the children's area. That he could say, walk up to the balcony. That he could say, come over to the stage. And you would hear his still, small voice and listen to him. Simeon hears what God says. The Holy Spirit's prompting him. Moved by the Spirit, he goes into the temple courts. When was the last time the Spirit of God moved you? You heard him. And as he calls you, just walk in obedience to do what he's asking you to do. Note in verse 27 again, when the parents brought in the child to do what was the custom, or what the custom of the law required, so here's a man coming through the temple, devout and righteous. He's there day in and day out, and he's looking for the consolation of Israel. The Holy Spirit is on him, and the Holy Spirit tells him to go into a certain area of the temple. He gets to that part of the temple courts. Simeon, this is verse 28, takes him in his arms. He's 40 days old, Jesus, and he prays God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you've promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. My eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared in the sight of the nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory for your people, Israel. 
Sovereign Lord, the God of the universe who holds everything in his might and hand, you promised this. You can now dismiss me. I'm free to go. I've now seen your salvation. What did he know? What did Simeon know? That Israel didn't just need more knowledge. This wasn't just about knowledge. It wasn't knowledge. I mean, I told you the story last year. I was at the gym one day. I, I know these, these are bad stories, um, gym stories. But, you know, I, I realized that uh, I, had been, I, I, had, I had been pushing on everything. I looked up online and it said I should, also, I should do push-pull leg day. And I didn't need leg day because I cycle and, and I go on our elliptical. But I thought, well, I do need... I do need pull days. So I'm, I'm looking through the gym for things I can pull on. I finally get to the um, chin-up bar, and I think, well, I'm going to jump on this thing. And I jump on it, and nothing happens. Like, all my, everything I got, not, can't do a thing. I put on the counterweight, nothing again. And then two young Mac students are standing beside me who might weigh 120 pounds each. And they say, it's 6.30 in the morning. No one should be talking to anyone at 6.30 in the morning. And they're like, sir. I'm like, oh, sir. Right? They're already identifying how old I am. And then, they, and then they say, do you need some help? And I said, no, I'm fine. And the other kid says, you don't look fine. <laughs> right? Just these awful moments in life. And, and then they said, we can show you how. And I say, this isn't about knowledge. I know how to do a chin-up. It's not about knowledge. This is right now about ability. And they said, no, no, let us show you. So I get down and kid jumps up. One, two, three, four. I just want to knock him off, but I didn't. Right? Simeon knows it's not just about knowledge. They have the whole law. God gave them all the knowledge. They knew what they were to do, but they couldn't do it. We don't just need to know the way of salvation. He also knew it wasn't just about an example, that someone wasn't just going to show you how to do it, and you would walk in their steps. He knew that we needed a Savior. We needed someone to come to rescue us. I talked about this last week, how we need someone to come in and we actually need to be saved. And Simeon rejoices that he has seen the salvation of God. Note, this is something you prepared in the sight of every nation. It's not just for the Jews. Right here in the beginning pages of Luke, the acknowledgement that this salvation is for everyone. You are a light to the Gentiles and a glory for the people of Israel. This is who Jesus is. He is salvation. He's a light for the Gentiles. I mean, most of us here today are not Jewish. Are you not glad he's a light to the Gentiles? We'll talk about this more next week as the Magi come, Gentiles come, to hear the good news, to worship the Christ. Oh, light. And he will be the glory of the people of Israel. From God's people will come Messiah, will come Christ well, the child's father and mother, verse 33, marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. I mean, firstly, note verse 33 Mary and Joseph, the mother and father, they marveled at what was said about him. If there was any doubt in their minds before, right, look what the Lord's done for them. I mean, first, Joseph doubts Mary, can this be real? An angel comes to Joseph and says it is. They end up in Bethlehem giving birth 
to Jesus in a stable, in a manger with no family and no friends. Joseph, instead of a midwife, is, giving, is, is helping Mary through the whole birth process. I couldn't even imagine that as a dad. That's why he had to be consecrated too. Because he was also there, not just present, but the blood was on him. And now as they walk in the temple with their son, they've experienced the, angel, the, the, the angels and then the shepherds who've declared who Jesus is on the night of his birth. And now 40 days later, because God is with this young couple, because God wants them to know he cares about them, as they walk through the temple, a man who's been there day in and day out looking for the consolation of Israel declares to them whom you're holding is he. Can you imagine how that encouraged them in that moment? They marveled. Oh, God, you're with us. They marveled. God, you're right here. They marveled. We haven't lost our minds. They marveled. We're obeying you, God, and you're with us. But it will be hard. He will cause the rising of some and the falling of others. Is that not true? There is no person in all of human history more controversial than Jesus Christ more volumes have been written about him. More things have been said about him. No one is more controversial than Jesus himself. Lots of people have opinions on them. And our culture has moved to a new place. I mean, 30 years ago, as I started my ministry, my ministry years, people would say, well, you know, I, 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 I believe Jesus was a good moral teacher. Do you know in, a, in, in the academy, no one says that anymore? We're way past that. They talk about how we're now immoral. How unethical his teachings were. That's what's said now, because our culture has shifted so far that they realize he can't have said these things. These things that he's claiming can't be true. Or man, there's a problem with what we're believing as a culture. So they've gotten smart enough to know we've actually got to get rid of Jesus. We've actually got to entirely eliminate him from the equation. I mean, other cultures still treat him with respect. They'll talk that way. Not, not Western, not, not the academy here, not the scholars here. That has changed. He will cause the falling of many, but he will also cause the rising of many. Aren't you glad that he took you from a pit and he put your feet on a rock? Is that not good news? He will cause the rising of many. He will be a sign. He's the Messiah that will be spoken against. Right? At the cross. If you are the Christ, do something. If you are the Son of God, come down. Though he's the sign, he'll be spoken against. But Mary, a sword will pierce your own heart. She'll be there when he's accused. She'll be there at his death. She'll be there on the third day when she goes to the tomb and she thinks someone has stolen his body. Oh, but when you read Scripture carefully, where do you also find her? In Acts 1, at the day of his ascension. She's still there. Because she has believed that he is the Christ, the Messiah. And her son has saved her. Is he not a good God? So though there'll be a moment when her soul will be pierced by a sword as she's watching this son that she raised and loved, and cared for, die, she will also be there as he declares full victory over sin and Satan and death. Verse 36. 
there was also a prophet, Anna, daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple. She worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at the very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Here's a prophet. Her name's Anna. Yes, the prophetic gift is given to women as well. She's a prophet named Anna. Isaiah's wife is named as a prophet. You know that, right? In the book of Isaiah, she's also named as a prophet in the Old Testament. Others as well. But here's a woman who God speaks through. She's a prophet. Her name's Anna. Luke, in identifying who she is, is saying that she's truly of Israelite heritage. She's older. Her and her husband had been married seven years. I like to think she is 84. It's hard to tell with the language here. Some of your translations may say she was a widow for 84 years, but that would now make her, if she got married at 13, husband died at, at uh, age 20, that would make her 104. Likely, I think it's better translated that they were married seven years, however old she was, and now she's been a widow until she's 84, not a widow for 84 years. Either way, it's a long time, right? She's been a widow for quite some time, and she's waiting. She's worshiping. She's fasting. She's praying. I want you to note a couple of things. I hope this is how I age. I hope I age with a sense of worship, with a longing to fast and to pray. I know some people who've aged and they've become bitter and crusty. And they're not fun to be around in any way. Some of you are looking at each other. You just stop that right now. I wasn't pointing at anyone here. I'm just having fun. But that was just happening. And, but we all know people that age and they're crusty and they're bitter. Here's a woman who loses her husband, so she loses her livelihood, her source of income. And what do you find her doing? Bitter? Angry? Upset? She's in the temple daily. She's been doing this for decades. She's worshiping God. She's fasting on a regular basis, showing her full dependence on him. She's praying. Instead of being bitter, instead of being crusty, instead of, she's like, I I'm closer to Jesus than I've ever been. I, I, she wouldn't know Jesus, to God than I've ever been. I'm, I'm so excited to see him one day. And while she's there in the temple, God allows this prophet, Anna, to have her eyes fall upon Mary and Joseph and this child. And as this happens, coming up to them at that very moment. So it's almost like as Simeon has been blessing them and offering this, and they're walking away, all of a sudden she sees them, and at that moment she gives thanks to God, and she speaks about the child for whom they are looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. A redeemer. A redeemer is going to come. What is redemption? Redemption is the purchasing back. It's the buying back. It's redeeming something. R.C. Sproul says this, We are not really surprised that God has redeemed us. Listen, this is really important. Somewhere deep inside, in the secret chambers of our hearts, we harbor the notion that God owes us his mercy, that heaven would not be quite the same if we were excluded from it. We know we are sinners, but we are not surely as bad as we could be. There are enough redeeming features in our personalities that if God really uh, if God is, re uh, is, is really just, he will include us in salvation. 
What amazes us is justice, not grace. You see, what happens in our lives is we often think that we deserve salvation more than others. Now, you immediately say, no, I don't. Well, let me help you out here. A porn star. A pedophile. Paul Bernardo. Somehow we think we deserve salvation more than others. And if you think that, if my just naming those things made you somehow think that you deserve salvation more than any of them, I would question today whether you're even saved. I'd question whether you're even saved. Because how can you understand grace? Oh, I name sin that we're repulsed by. Do you know that God is repulsed at every sin? God is repulsed at every sin. He is equally repulsed by all sin, by bitterness, by resentment, by greed, by pride, by anger. He is equally repulsed. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and we all equally deserve damnation. Do you know that? Not just theoretically. If somewhere deep inside of you, you somehow think over the Christmas season as you gather with relatives that you somehow deserve God's favor more than them, something at the very core of your belief system is wrong. Did you catch that? Something at the very core of your belief system is wrong. We should be equally repulsed by all sin. And if you think that you deserve salvation, so that somehow more than someone else, you do not understand the depth of your sin, and you do not understand the means of your salvation. We've been created by God. We've all rebelled against him. And we all need a savior. Sproul told this illustration. He passed away in 2017. You can Google this stuff online. He is so worth listening to, R.C. Sproul. He told this illustration of when he was a young professor. He had 250 people in an introduction class. And he gave them three assignments, one due on the, uh, uh, September 30th, one due on October 30th, one due on November 30th. Well, September 30th came around, and he had 225 of 250 papers handed in. They're there in class, and the students are coming up saying, we're so sorry, Prof. We've not transitioned from high school well. We're so sorry, Prof. We got busy with other assignments. We're so sorry, Prof. We got behind. And he said, I'll give, you, I'll give you two more days. You can have two more days, but it's got to be handed in two days. All 250 papers done in two days. Then November, uh, October 30th came. This time, only 200 of 250 papers show up that day. Pa uh, Pastor, you know, Dr. Sproul, it just got so busy. There's midterms. Things have been so hard. You know, we couldn't get it all in. Give you two more days. Give you two more days, no problem. November 30th comes. Only 100 papers are handed in. And he says, Jackson, where's your paper? He said, I don't have it, but I'll have it to you in two days. He said, no, it's due today, F. Jackson's like, what? Lewis, where's your paper? Well, I'll have it to you in two days, professor. I, I didn't have it done today. No, it was due today, F. And what do all the students say? That's not. And what did he say? The fact that I showed you grace on two occasions doesn't mean you should take advantage of it on the third. Is that not our God? Do you know why I'm alive today? Do you know why I woke up this morning? Because God chose to give me breath. 
Because God chose to give me life because of his grace. Do you know why I'm his child? Not because I'm a pastor, not because I can speak, not because of anything I've done. Do you know why I am his child? Because God, by his grace, when I was dead, chose to give me life, and he saved me. That's why I'm his child. And I have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. I am not saved because of me. I am saved because of him. It is the good news of the gospel, and he can save anyone. His shed blood and accomplished work is enough. Is that not great news? He can save anyone because it's based on what he's done and not based on who we are. So how do we understand redemption? Stories told years ago of a young boy, 10 years of age, shows up at church. He's got two birds in a cage that he's caught. And he goes up to the pastor and he says, I caught these birds, but they're no good. They don't sing. And uh, the pastor says to the young man, he says, what are you going to do with the birds after church? He said, I'm going to go home and feed them to my barn cats. And the pastor says, I'll buy those birds off you for $2. And he said, well, man, you're getting ripped off. He says, years ago. So two bucks was a lot of money. And, uh, and the pastor says, no, watch what will happen when I buy these birds from you. So he bought the birds from him, took them outside of the church, and set them free. And as the birds were set free, they began to fly and to sing. And the boy said, why are they singing? And the pastor said, I bought them back. I set them free. That's what Jesus has done. He's bought us back by his blood. And he frees us from both the bondage of sin and the penalty of sin. That's why it can be said there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Oh, on that day when Simeon and Anna see the Christ child, this child who's 40 day, days old, 40 days old. They rejoice in what God has done and is doing. And we live on the other side of that, don't we? We live on the other side of his death and resurrection, of his ascension, where his spirit is in us. And he's at work in our lives. And as he's in work in our lives, what we should be doing continually is, is rejoicing in what God has done. Oh God, you granted me breath today. Oh God, you granted me life today. Oh God, I'm in relationship with you today. Oh God, I am your child today. I've been redeemed. Praise his name. I've been redeemed. The God of the universe has saved me. Not because of anything I could do. Not because of anything I deserved. But because of his great love for me. Is he not a great God? He redeems us, Merry Christmas. He redeems us, joy to the world. He redeems us, good news of great joy. He is the salvation of our world. The story is told of a young boy. He's probably 12 years old. He crafted a boat. He was studying under his dad to follow in his footsteps and work with wood. And he crafted a beautiful boat and he created sails for it, and his dad said, be careful with it or you'll lose it in the creek. He's down at the creek playing with it, and one day a gust of wind comes with some waves, and the little boat that he created floats away. 
And a few days later, he sees it in the local corner store. It's a five and dime for sale. He goes up to the owner. He says, that's my boat. The owner says, no, it's, it's not. Somebody came in and sold it to me. He said they found it. And I bought it from them. So if you want that boat, you got to buy it from me. And the boy said, that's not fair. But the owner said, that's, that's how this works. So the young boy went and he did all these odd jobs for others. He helped others out and he saved the money to buy his boat. And he went back a few days later and he bought his boat back. And he said this, you're now twice mine. I made you and I bought you back. That's our story, isn't it? We're made in the image and likeness of God and yet we chose to rebel against him. We chose to walk away from him. We chose by our sin to make choices that would repulse him. That would repulse him. He's repulsed by sin. He's holy and perfect. And yet because of his great love, because of his great grace, he longed to buy us back. But the only way he could buy us back was if blood was shed. And the shedding of our blood would never be enough. And so the blood of lambs and bulls and goats and pigeons was shed. But they could only point to a greater shedding of blood because their blood would never be enough. They were placeholders. Their blood would never be enough to take away the sin of the world. But then a child is born. A son is given. He grows. He's perfect. He never sins. At the end of his life, Jesus, he gives his life on the cross up for us. He, the Bible says, becomes our sin on the cross so that he can grant us his righteousness. And having defeated sin and Satan and death on that cross, three days later, he's raised to life again. And he grants to anyone who believes redemption. He grants to anyone who believes salvation. He is God the Son come down. He is the Christ the Savior, the Lord, and he saves and he delights in doing so. And I am his child today for one reason and one reason alone. He's redeemed me, praise his name. He saved me from my sin. He is a great God. And so what should your posture be? Oh, may your posture every day be one that is repulsed by your sin. Even this week, I remember going to the gym one day and I was just praying, God, help me to hate this sin in my life. When was the last time you just asked God to help you hate your sin? Oh God, help me to have a hatred for my sin. Help me to have a love for you. God, help me to be repulsed by sin the way you're repulsed by sin. Oh God, help me to hate it. And every day of your life, you should be asking God for that repulsion of sin. And every day of your life, you should be rejoicing that that sin has been paid for by the blood of Jesus and that he has ransomed you and will welcome you into glory because there's no condemnation for you. You are in Christ Jesus. What a great God. What an amazing message. Salvation has come. Redemption is here, verse 39. Notice again, when Mary and Joseph had done everything required by the law, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. As Luke recounts this, we're going to fill some of this out next week, because after these 40 days, the Magi show up. There's the flight to Egypt, and then they return to Nazareth. So as Luke's recording this, he's, you know, we don't have a lot on the childhood of Jesus, but Luke's saying this happened, they fulfilled all the purification rites of the law, and he ends up in Nazareth. But he ends up in Nazareth after the Magi show up, 
after the flight to Egypt. Then, as Matthew records for us, he ends up in Nazareth. You're redeemed. Redeemed how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed, redeemed. His child and forever I am. I remember as a child singing this song by William Cowper. There is a fountain filled with blood and thinking, what a weird song to sing. And as I age, and I'm not 60 yet, but as I'm 52. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed ones of God be saved to sin no more. Ere since by faith I saw the stream thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been thy theme, my theme, and shall be till I die. Simeon and Anna anticipated waiting, going to the temple led by the Spirit of God. Will this be the day that God reveals the Messiah? Will this be the day that the consolation of Israel will come? And they saw that day declaring the salvation and redemption of God's people. Oh, this Christmas, may we be a people that glory in the salvation of our God. Oh, this Christmas, may we be a people that glory in the salvation of our God. He has redeemed us. He has saved us. His blood was shed for us. He has defeated sin and Satan and death for us. And every day when you wake up, you can say, Oh God, grant me a hatred for sin. And oh God, thank you that I'm alive. A child of the living God, rejoicing in what he's done. Because your joy is not found. Your happiness is not found in your success or in your well-being or in your accomplishment. Your joy is found in the accomplishment and the well-being and the success of the great sovereign God of the universe, Jesus Christ the Lord, who saves and redeems. Amen? We are thankful, Jesus, for your salvation. We're thankful that redemption comes from you. And as we gather here as your people we confess it's easy, easy for us to think that somehow, somehow in us, somewhere, there was something that says we're better than other people. That's why you saved us. Oh God, may we know that you are as repulsed by our sin as you are by anyone's sin. And God, may we be reminded that we are saved by your grace and love that you've lavished on us. And may we be reminded that the redemption that you've got granted us declares that our sin, not in part, but the full, is paid for. And there's no condemnation for us in Christ Jesus. May this Christmas we celebrate and rejoice in the redemption you've granted us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. From Romans 15, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of his Holy Spirit. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.